If you ever find yourself in Bucharest, Romania, and you have some time to kill, you might want to visit a warehouse just outside of the city. I'm sorry, I don't have a more detailed address or anything, so just start looking for warehouses in the suburbs outside of Bucharest. Um, But you want to look for a warehouse, not just any warehouse, but one specific warehouse that holds the vast files of the Romanian secret police. This was Romania's secret police that operated under the communist rule that gripped the country for decades and eventually crumbled in the late 80s. Eventually, the government decided to open up the files of what the secret police had on all of their citizens. And those files are now stored in this warehouse where you can go look and see what, you, what, what the government had on you. If you're a Romanian, I doubt they had anything on many of us. But that would be a fascinating question to ask, right? Because you wouldn't just say, okay, well, I want to know what the government had on me. But in Romania, under communist rule, it was illegal to do things like own a Bible, to own Western non-communist literature. And so people were regularly arrested by secret police and uh, hauled before judges and and thrown in prisons based on trumped-up charges. And so the danger that the government or the authorities faced as they determined whether to release these files or not was that not only is it just going to be what your government has on you, but there's going to be information a lot of times on who ratted out their neighbors, their family members. So, if you're a Romanian, would you want to know that kind of information? We come to a passage this morning that gives us information on how Jesus went to the cross. And it's interesting because, you know, I talked about Romanians and would they want to know that information because one reason knowing who did a crime or knowing who who, who did something helps to understand the motivation or the why behind it. Not justifying it or anything, but it, it helps to answer the why. And so as we consider Jesus and his walking to the cross, and we consider Judas's betrayal that we're going to see this morning, you see we're, we're going to understand ways in which we answer the question of who actually sent Jesus to the cross, who was the cause of Jesus going to the cross, because that changes or that informs everything that we answer about his death on the cross. And what I'm going to argue from this text is that in his death, Jesus established his kingdom, he redeemed us, and he set the example for us because he willingly went to the cross. Let me say that again. In his death, Jesus established his kingdom, redeemed us, set the example for us because he willingly went to the cross. I invite you to follow along as I read from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But, but behold, the hand, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. May God bless our time in His Word this morning. We're going to approach this in somewhat like a crime scene today. We're going to ask ourselves, we're coming on the scene And we're going to ask ourselves three questions about Jesus' coming death that will help us understand what's happening behind it and what we need to learn from it. So the first question, who was responsible for Jesus going to the cross? In one sense, verses 1 through 6 are actually quite straightforward. It's the most holy week in Israel where the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover are, are occurring. And we're going to get to the meaning and the significance of the Passover in a moment, so hold on to that. But Jerusalem was a town of a, a population of, I don't know, 70, 75, 80,000 people at the time. But during Passover week, the, the, the population would swell with tens and tens and tens of thousands of pilgrims coming into the city, raising the population for a week uh, more than double, almost even triple, per, per, perhaps. And so all these people, are, these pilgrims are entering the city, converging upon Jerusalem, and verse 2 tells us the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, the him there is Jesus, how to put him to death, for they feared the people. See, Jesus was teaching in the, in, in the temple. He was, he was, he was confounding the, the, the religious leaders, and he was, he was um, working wonders before the audiences who were hearing him, and, and, and he, was, he was opening their minds and their eyes to see himself and to see the Word of God, the law of God that had been given to them. And the religious leaders felt threatened. So verse 3 tells us that Satan entered into Judas, and he agreed to betray Jesus to the chief priests and the scribes. 
He would provide a way that they could capture Jesus away from the crowds under the cover of darkness, and they would compensate Judas for this. Now, we have to understand that Jerusalem in Jesus' day was not like situate in our day. If you think somebody is out to get you, maybe even to physically harm you or kill you, you would notify the authorities and they, they would act on your behalf. But remember, Jerusalem and Israel in Jesus' day was under Roman occupation. And the Romans' main goal was not enacting a, a perfect system of justice, but keeping the peoples, keeping the masses, keeping the populations under control. And so the religious authorities who are seeking to try to kill Jesus, seeking ways to, to catch him and, and, and kill him or, or catch him in a lie and, and stir up the people against him, Jesus doesn't have a recourse. He doesn't have a government he could go to to say, hey, protect me from this. And so he was teaching in, temples during the, in the temple during the day, but at night he was retreating outside of the city with his disciples and kind of uh, hiding under the cover of darkness before he could go back into the temples during the day and have the protection of the large crowds who were fascinated or captivated by him. So now, this statement that Jesus had entered into Judas is a curious one, prompting questions. Can someone be possessed by Satan? Is this normal? Can, it, can someone be a Christian and then be led to walk away from Jesus? This is strange, like concerning. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. Now, without getting too far off course, I'll just say, suffice for now, Scripture does not teach that Satan can enter or possess a Christian. Judas was not a Christian. He was simply used by the enemies of God seeking to destroy Jesus. There's a warning here, is there not? Judas was physically in close proximity for three years. As, as, as one guy I've heard it say before, Judas spent three years in the best seminary the world has ever known, sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his teaching, watching his miracles, and yet it did not transform him. He was in close proximity to him, and yet he ultimately disbelieved and betrayed Jesus. And so here's this warning for us. Your, your spiritual resume your regular attendance to church. These are of no significance if Jesus is simply a mechanism to an easier, more comfortable life. If Jesus is simply a, men, a means to a greater end. Rather, Jesus must be your all-surpassing reward, the prize of your heart, the redeemer, the rescuer that you cling to because you know the evils of your own sin, and He is your salvation. Now, this concept of sin, it can be difficult to stomach. We don't, we don't talk about sin a lot in our day and age, do we? Sit down at, at, at the break room tomorrow at work or at lunch with a coworker and say, have you thought about your sin lately? Yeah, it, it doesn't happen, right? And so sometimes in, 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 our, in, our, in our minds, we can hear this, these notions of our sin. We can say, hold on a second, what are you getting at? I'm pretty good. Have you considered my neighbors or have you considered these other people? They're the really bad sinners, we have to understand here. Imagine the, the, a, a way, uh, let me give an illustration of how you might be able to begin to understand your own sinfulness, my own sinfulness, before a holy, righteous, just God. So consider this illustration. Imagine you have parents who have literally done everything right for you. In love, they have graciously supplied you with all that you need. In gentleness, they have tenderly cared for your heart as you have grown up from childhood to adult. They have literally never done one thing wrong on your behalf. 
Now, first of all, that's parents that are impossible to have. But now imagine that if they did all of these things, that your response to them is to mock them, to make light of them, to reject them, to lash out in anger against them, to even get violent with them. For as preposterous as that sounds, that is a small introduction to our sinfulness against our holy God, our Creator who has made us. It's not a sense of, hey, nobody's perfect. It's evil cosmic rebellion against our good Creator. And so Judas, who decided to betray Jesus, and he's just walking in the same DNA, in the same steps as Adam and Eve, who rejected God's rule in the garden. And we, as children of Adam and Eve, we carry that same DNA that plagues our sinful hearts apart from Christ. But thankfully, as this passage reveals, Jesus is resolved to address this for our good and for His glory. Now, if you look at verses 7 to 13, you would find Jesus telling two of His disciples to go into the city and find a man who will have a guest room prepared for them to share in the Passover. This is similar to an event a couple of chapters ago where uh, Jesus sent disciples into the city to find a man who had a colt uh, ready for him to ride in his triumphant entry into the city. And so Jesus has this plan carefully orchestrated, meticulously planned out, where a Passover meal is going to be celebrated secretly in this hidden guest room back inside the city where the threats are higher, where the danger is greater. And we must understand that just as this Passover meal was carefully planned and unfolded in accord with Jesus' plans, they found the man, they found the guest room, just as Jesus had said in verse 13, you see this, they went and found it just as He had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus' willingness to go to the cross was just as carefully planned. You see, we are starting to see here that, okay, Judas was responsible, the religious leaders were responsible, but Jesus willingly went to the cross. See, if you're unfamiliar with Passover, Passover was a a, a precious holiday, a solemn remembering, the most significant, uh, um, meaningful holiday on the Jewish calendar. They would remember, the people of Israel would remember God's redeeming them out of the oppression, the slavery they endured in Egypt. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, the the people of Israel were enslaved, uh, receiving harsh, cruel treatment at the hands of the Egyptians. But God, their Redeemer, their Rescuer, brought plagues upon the Egyptians for the sake of freeing the Israelites. And so He brought plagues, He brought plagues, but they continued, the the Egyptians failed to relent, and then God promised a tenth plague that would not only hit the Egyptians, but, but the Israelites as well. God promised to act in judgment and destroy the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of Israel as well. But those who, who, who sacrificed a lamb and spread its blood on their doorposts would be passed over by this angel of death. The people of Israel did this, and God passed over them as He showed His power, and they were released from the brutal Egyptian slavery that they had endured, and they were freed to leave Egypt departing towards the Red Sea, which God parted so that they could cross. So Israel celebrated the Passover as a memory of God's faithfulness, His rescuing of them, but also looking forward to coming rescue that they still needed, knowing that God is a God who keeps His promise. 
And so ultimately, one thing this passage communicates is that Judas and the chief priests describes they were responsible participants in Jesus' death, but the main actor was Jesus Himself, was God, who was doing a work to rescue His people. So who was responsible for Jesus' death? Ultimately, Jesus and God the Father. So the second question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Verse 14 resumes with Jesus and his close band of disciples or apostles gathered in that spare guest room in Jerusalem to share in the Passover meal. And just follow along as I read verses 14 to 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now pause here. You see the reference to his sufferings. Jesus knows he's going to suffer. Judas hasn't betrayed him yet. He knows what is going on. Now resume back in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it, that's for Passover, until it is finished, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see, pause here. You see the harmony of, of man's responsibility, but of God's sovereignty. Or Judas is responsible. Yet Jesus knows where he's going, and it has been set in course that he would do this. Verse 23, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Now, I want to rewind again. Remember the people of Israel, they passed through the Red Sea. They received the law of God after doing so. God made a covenant with them. He rescued them. He committed to being their God, their protector, their provider. They committed to following Him in obedience to His law, in obedience to Him, worshiping Him as their God, their Lord over all things. And this is what is called in theology and even in Scripture called the Old Covenant. God has redeemed His people. He set a, a, a covenant with them. They have agreed to this covenant, and they're going to walk in obedience to Him and worship of Him. But the problem is, if you survey your Old Testament, the people of Israel continually failed in keeping this Old, Test, this old Covenant. Not because they were particularly weak people, but because they had a sinful human flesh like you and I do. So they failed in keeping this covenant. It was regularly broken by their own sin. And so the Old Testament is just a cycle of the people, uh, uh, God redeeming His people, establishing covenant with them, then breaking the covenant, God redeeming, rescuing them again, establishing covenant, then breaking the covenant, God redeeming, rescuing again. And it's this whole pattern. And ultimately, you see the need for a new covenant. I'm reminded of what they needed is the same thing that you and I need as we try to serve God. We need something greater than our own willpower. We need something greater than our internal fortitude. We need something greater than the greatest strength that we can muster. Why do we need this? Because as C.S. Lewis once wrote, no man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. No man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. Seriously, try to navigate a single day without telling a white lie. 
Try to navigate a single day without harboring envy or jealousy or unjust anger towards another. Try to navigate a single day without thinking lustfully or thinking unkind, even vengeful thoughts towards that person in your life who you know they deserve to get it. We can't do it. Have you ever wondered in the Old Testament how somebody became a Christian, how they they became a follower of God? Because on this side of the cross, we say you place your faith in Christ and Jesus who has died for your sins. So how were they justified before God, before Jesus actually died for their sins? Well, as the Old Testament says, their faith was counted to them as righteousness. They had faith that God would supply a redeemer. And they had faith that God would keep his promises. And so yearly, regularly, they made sacrifices and they looked forward to their redemption. But they looked forward knowing they needed a new covenant. And now look at what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus establishing this new covenant. The old covenant was a commitment between God and his people after they they left Egypt. They've been redeemed. They obey his law. They make their sacrifices. But what separates the new covenant from the old covenant? It wasn't that God was in a better mood around these days. His grace is all over the Old Testament as He continually brought His people back to Him. The difference is the new covenant cannot be wrecked by your sin or by mine. And it's fascinating. Way back in the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 30 to 34, God promised to establish this new covenant with His people that would be anchored in the righteousness that He would supply them. But how? He would supply it for them in the final sacrifice, in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. See, I'm not perfectly righteous. You're not perfectly righteous. We need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. And it is established through Jesus. So when he stands here and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, it's saying, don't you try to keep this covenant because you, out of your own strength, it's saying, no, I have kept this covenant and I am giving it to you through my righteousness. That is what Jesus is saying here. And you want to see something fascinating? God here is sending the final sacrifice, the final Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But as Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper, you have two elements that are present. Maybe you've noticed this already. There's bread and wine, which I don't know about you, that's a pretty lame meal. You need meat. You need, you need, you need main course. You don't have any of that mentioned. And what Jesus is alluding to here as an illustration, is that He will be the Lamb. He will be the final Passover sacrifice. Now, I imagine they had meat here that they, that they were going to eat. But this is presented here as Jesus is the one who will take away the sins of the world. And I want you to see something very interesting. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 and 7 and 8 and 15 and 16. Every time the Passover is mentioned, we see reference to Jesus' death. And this is no accident. Look at verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And then verse 2, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They thought they were trying to kill him. They were fulfilling this need for a new sacrifice. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. 
Jesus telling them, go prepare this because I'm going to show you. And then verses um, 15 and 16, uh, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, he's referencing his suffering in connection with the Passover yet again. See, this new covenant is Jesus' perfect final work, but it's also this promise that those who come to him by faith, those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, they are made new. You see, before Jesus, people, their faith, they would cling to God, they were trusting God by faith. But in this new covenant, those who come to Jesus by faith are actually given a new heart. They're given the ability to, to, to walk in righteousness before God, to walk in a manner of obedience and change and transformed life in a way that they have never known before because they've received the supernatural grace of God that's been given to them. In this new work of God, He rewrites, rewrites the internal software, the DNA of our hearts, makes us, takes us from ones who are opposed to God, who, who reject His rule, who, who, have, who, who, who do not want to submit under His rule, to ones who are transformed and desire now to follow Him. Perhaps you know a Christian who, in your life, who they once were one way and now they're another way, and you can't really explain it apart from God has given them a new heart. They've received this new covenant. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've not come to Him and confessed your sins and, and placed faith in Him, I invite you, speak with me after our service or, or shoot me an email. My email's on our bulletin. I'd love to just talk with you more about that and help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we must continue on. Our time is short, and we must finish this. Now, appropriately... After Jesus solemnly establishes this new covenant and tells that His betrayal is coming, that His death is near, in verse 24 and following, His disciples decide that's a good place for them to have a fight over which of them is actually the greatest. Look at that, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And this raises the question for us, Okay, we have the who was responsible for Jesus' death, why did he die, and now what does this mean for us? Well, the danger for us is like the disciples in misunderstanding this talk of his kingdom coming, where Jesus was going to usher in his kingdom in his death. They thought he was going to usher in his kingdom in, in his power and overthrow Rome. But he was overthrowing an enemy far greater than Rome. He was overthrowing sin and death. And so what does Jesus' cross mean for us? It means that we must come to Him and we must, we must serve Him. The cross of Christ is not a place that we swagger up to for the sake of our reputation, for the sake of our acclaim, for the sake of making ourselves great. The cross of Christ is something we humble ourselves under and we follow our Lord who served us by dying for us. This language that Jesus used in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in, their, in authority over them are called benefactors. This is this, is this language of, 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 of ones who receive service, of ones who, who, who are held in high regard and, and servants serve their needs. In verse 26, though, Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. As the youngest, remember passage a few weeks prior, or a few weeks ago, where uh, we, we saw how, how little children were actually viewed in pretty unfavorable light in Jesus' day? 
They were rejected as useless, as worthless in the eyes of society. And Jesus says, no, if you want to become great, you must become like the youngest. You must become one who serves. The language here is of a household servant. And here we have the model of who Jesus Christ Himself humbling Himself and serving and giving of Himself all the way to the point of death. You know, the pathway to a healthy, to a happy church, hearts transformed by the gospel and willing and looking to serve wherever they can the needs of one another in the church body. You know, the way to a pathway to a healthy, happy home, humility in seeking to serve the needs of those we share a home with, humility in seeking to build up their good and not having to fight for what we believe is rightfully ours but humbling ourselves and trusting ourselves to our Lord. In our church family, may we, may we serve others perhaps by practicing hospitality, seeking to get to know others in our church family. Regardless of what we have in our lives, we all have this one thing that is so precious, and that is our time. And so perhaps one of the great ways that we can serve others in our church body is by giving of our time for the sake of building them up in the faith, for the sake of getting to know them better. There's a beauty to service in the church. There's a beauty to service alongside of one another. There's a beauty when you look in upon the, 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 the children's program and you have the, the retired elderly lady serving alongside the man who's a titan of industry, who has tens of thousands of people who report to him on Monday through Friday, and yet on Sunday morning he's humbly serving the small children in children's programs. There's a beauty here in the service of the people of God, following their Lord, following their Master. And you want to know what's absolutely captivating about this as we conclude? In verses 28 to 30, look at this. First of all, these guys are disputing. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. These guys are fighting over which of them is the greatest as He is mere hours from death. And he doesn't rain down just, just vitriol upon them. He doesn't call down fire from heaven to destroy them. He uses it as a time to teach them. And if you look at verses 28 to 30, what does he do? He says to them, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He basically says to them, you take up your cross now serving me, and yes, one day awaiting you will be a crown. And that is the pattern and the hope of the Christian life. You take up your cross today, and when you enter into his presence, you will receive a crown. And he tells these guys, look, you can look forward. While they're, while they're sharing in this Passover meal that he will fulfill in his death, they're looking around the table at one another. He's saying there's going to be a table far greater than this that we are going to feast at. And we're going to feast in it, in, at it in the joy of my kingdom that has come. And do you remember he said, I, I, will, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God? He said that a couple of times. I think one thing that's pictured here is Jesus is so desirous of and so ready to share this meal with his followers that he will feast on it with us in the new heavens and the new earth. 
But until then, he gives us a meal that we partake in from time to time to remind ourselves of what he has done and what we anticipate. To the service of his cross, the coming of his return. And we share that meal together in the Lord's Supper. This is what we're going to commemorate in just a few moments. But I urge you to take this heart of service to see early in this passage Judas wanted a price for Jesus. And later in this passage, Jesus told those who would come after him, you must serve. Judas wanted to sell Jesus for his own gain. And somewhere there's an unnamed disciple who provided an open room that Jesus may share the Passover with his disciples. Let us be careful that we don't want a price for Jesus instead of saying, I have a place for Jesus. Jesus awaits us at his table. He has served us by giving his life for us. May we feast on him by faith. And may we anticipate when we will gather with him and celebrate the arrival of his kingdom. In his death, Jesus established his kingdom. He redeemed us and he set the example for us. Let us take this to heart. Let us hope in him who reigns as victorious over his cross.